Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. My using, I don't remember a lot of it. And like, so now I can like look back and kind of see some things happening, but you know, I don't have a lot of, of like great using stories because I was like literally just the bottom of a barrel drunk and, and, and junkie from the, from the get go. You know, I really didn't acquire anything to lose other than my, myself. That was Kayla Greenholch, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for The Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Share Podcast. And today, we have Kayla Greenholch joining us on the show. She is a sober mommy. She is the founder of Sober Mommy Blog on recovery and addiction. And she has also had articles featured on addictionblog.org and thefix.com. Kayla is part of the destigmatization of addiction movement. She's loud, she's proud, and she is determined to help others find their way to the other side the same way she did. So today, Kayla takes us through the battle she had with drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in her life, and her journey into recovery up until today. But first, we're going to start off this episode with a reading from Just for Today. January 22nd, 2017, The School of Recovery, page 22. This is a program for learning. Basic text, page 16. Learning in recovery is hard work. The things we most need to know are often the hardest to learn. We study recovery to prepare ourselves for the experiences life will give us. As we listen to others share in meetings, we take mental notes we can refer to later. To be prepared, we study our notes and literature between lessons. Just as students have the opportunity to apply their knowledge during tests, so do we have the opportunity to apply our recovery during times of crisis. As always, we have a choice in how we will approach life's challenges. We can dread and avoid them as threats to our serenity, or we can gratefully accept them as an opportunity for growth. By confirming the principles we've learned in recovery, life's challenges give us increased strength. Without such challenges, however, we could forget what we've learned and begin to stagnate. These are the opportunities that prod us to new spiritual awakenings. We will find that there is often a period of rest after each crisis giving us time to get accustomed to our new skills. Once we've reflected on our experience, we are called on to share our knowledge with someone who is studying what we've just learned. In the School of Recovery, all of us are teachers as well as students. Just for today, I will be a student of recovery. I will welcome challenges, confident in what I've learned, and eager to share it with others. My name is Omar. I'm an addict. Another great reading, and as usual, it's exactly where I'm at in this moment today. This is the same just for today reading January 22nd, 2017 that it was 2016, 2015 since I got clean. And yet every year they take on a different meaning. They take on a different form. This is still reminiscent to where I'm at right now 
which was getting through 2016 and then springboarding into 2017, where I was faced with many challenges, many crises, and I had an opportunity to either dread and avoid them or look at them as opportunities for growth. At the end of the day, it all boils down to fear. And the acronyms that I learned in recovery for fear were face everything and recover or fuck everything and run. And on a daily basis, I have to decide what I'm going to do with that fear. One of the greatest things I've learned in this program is that I only have a daily reprieve, 24 hours, just for today. So if I get up in the morning, I get on my knees, I ask God for help, I surrender, I turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And then the next morning I wake up and I don't do that then I am now operating on self-will. And that's not just a topic in recovery. That's a topic in life. The top motivators out there, the leaders, the Tony Robbins, the Gary Vaynerchuks, the Hal Elrods, these inspirational motivators speak about these opportunities in life, these challenges that present themselves, and we have, we have a decision to make and how we look at these because it's all about your perspective as a human being and speaking for myself, it's so easy to you know tuck my tail between my legs and run instead of doing the, the hard work, which is ask God for help. Because I know if I do that, I'll get the answers that I need. But sometimes these answers or these gifts, they come in packages that I don't like. The wrapping sucks. So we get these gifts and, and wrapping that we don't like. So... In many cases, again, speaking for myself, I don't even want to open it. And that's a big mistake. The sooner I tear open these gifts and start looking for the opportunities of growth and learning, the sooner miracles will happen in my life. It's as simple as that. You know, again, I go back to I've been doing a lot of prayer, a lot of meditation, and I mean on my knees prayer. God, help me intuitively understand how to handle situations that used to baffle me. I can't do this. You can. I'm going to turn this over to you. Those kind of prayers where the minute I'm done with that prayer, I'm ready for the day. You know, I have relinquished control. I've allowed the sunlight of the Spirit to work through me, to shine through me, and to allow God to guide me through the day, which is what I need. The school of recovery is really the school of life. Every challenge, every crisis is an opportunity to learn and grow. And years from now, when somebody comes to me and asks me the same question, I'm going to be able to walk them through them only because I can tell them my story. So today I am grateful for this program. I'm grateful to be an addict and I'm grateful to be in the school of recovery. More importantly, I I welcome these challenges. I do. Because as I turn things over on a daily basis, I'm confident that my higher power is going to get me through it. If God got you to it, he'll get you through it. I believe that 100% with all my heart. So thanks for letting me share, HP baby. And let's dive into Kayla's story. But first, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. First, I want to thank the people who have sent us donations via PayPal. There are a few of you that still continuously send donations on a monthly basis, but we can always use more. So on a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week 
who listen to the Share podcast. So if a hundred of you guys would send me five bucks a month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me five bucks, either PayPal or by Patreon, then please feel free to do so. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you, just like in the meetings, that are newcomers, the money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast Private Accountability Group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast private accountability group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the private accountability group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have. All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.sobernation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hey, Kayla, thanks for joining us. Hi, Oh, Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for asking. Awesome. All right. So let's jump right in. So first, folks, today we have Kayla Greenhalge joining us on the Share Podcast. And Kayla is the founder of Sober Mommy Blog on recovery and addiction. She has also had articles featured on addictionblog.org and thefix.com. Kayla is part of the destigmatization of addiction movement. That sound about right, Kayla? Sounds good. All right, excellent. So let's <laughs> let's dive right in then. So first of all, just take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. Sure. So um, I'm a mother of two, so I wake up very early in the morning, and you know I do my no- my normal morning routine. It's pretty hectic with two kids. Um, I work from home. I'm you know I went to school for engineering. Right now I'm working on emails. 
And so I work for eight hours from home. I have a nanny here. After work, I usually take that time to either go for a run or if it's, it's, I'm in New England, so it's really cold out. <laughs> um, so I'll either take that time to like meditate or do some writing or reading or, you know, whatever I need to do to transition from my work day into being a mother again. And then, you know, I, I do the whole family thing at night. And before I go to bed, I meditate again. I reflect on my day. Um, I write any wrongs that I need to write at that time. And then I hit the pillow. Excellent. So what does your recovery routine look like as far as meetings and uh, that kind of a deal? So me, I mean, I talk to my sponsor every single day. Meetings are kind of when I can get to them. Like I said, I have a full-time job. I have my writing. I'm doing a lot of outreach projects for in the addiction community. So a lot of my recovery is around um, going and meeting other recovering addicts and trying to you know, make open forums for the communities. It's a lot of community outreach with other addicts. And then, you know, usually once or, or maybe twice a week, I'll get to a meeting and sometimes I'll get to the whole thing or, you know, I at least try to, to show my face because they know that they can, you know, if I need help, I can come to them. And then if they need help, they can come to me. You're very, very busy. I am. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lot going on. I do. You know, it's crazy. But that's what I that's how I function best. Some of us just absolutely need to be on that grind, you know, yeah. every single day. Dead space is it, it's kind of it's troublesome having that dead space. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you did mention in the beginning about, you know, you meditate in the morning and you meditate at night. One of my questions is, you know, how do you maintain your spiritual condition at conscious contact with a higher power? Is there something a little bit more expansive you want to go into as far as, you know, that conscious contact with a higher power? Yeah, sure. So I I believe in meditation. I tried in early recovery, I tried praying um, kind of like everyone else did, you know, and I was trying to adapt their values and their way to connect with their higher power. And I had to step back and really realize that my higher power is different from from other people's. And I, I think that's the same with a lot of us. Um, so I have conversations with my higher power within my meditations. It's almost like an open prayer. I, it's kind of like a conversation. You know, I try to listen for the message that my higher power is trying to give me during that meditation session. And I'll ask questions and then I'll sit in silence and listen for the message. And usually I'll get it. Absolutely. You know, I ask all these questions in the beginning because we're going to go into your story. We're going to mm -hmm. talk about the wreckage that, you know, the disease wreaked yeah. in your lives. It's so important to know, you know, that we have these amazing lives now. We have these amazing mm -hmm. lives and there's a lot of congruency within those lives. A lot of it is that, you know, that conscious contact with a higher power, the relationship that we have with, you know, our recovery community, what mm -hmm. we're currently doing, and also our, you know, our secular work, our circular lives, you know, what we're doing. I'm a mother, you know, I, you know, I, I work full time, plus I have recovery, right. I have all these things that are going on, I still find time to create that balance in our lives, where mm -hmm. there was none of that before, absolutely nothing. Oh, there was not. <laughs> no, so it's definitely good to hear. All right, so let's start, you know, journaling your, your past a little bit. Uh, first, first, tell us how much clean time you have and when is your anniversary date? So I got clean on May 13th of 2011. Um, so I'm about five and a half years clean at this point. Fantastic. 
And how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? I was 18. And the first time that I, I drank for the first time, you know, I got a little buzz and it made me feel less anxious. I was always an anxious kid and I never was able to calm down my anxiety until the first time I took a drink. Okay, I got you. I got you. And uh, again, very reminiscent to so many of us, that feeling of <laughs> comfort and ease that comes with that first drink. I know. All right. So you are all warmed up, Kayla. It's time for me to turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story, the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Kayla, take it away. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so as I said, I didn't take my first drink until I was 18. And reason being is I grew up in a home with addicts. And, um, you know, my, my dad was and still is an active al alcoholic, and my brother was a heroin addict. So growing up, my mom tried to shelter me from that. And instead of teaching me what these substances were doing to my family members, she just hid it from me and told me if I ever took a drink, I would become an alcoholic. Or if I ever did drugs, I would become a junkie. And so when I, I moved out of my home, I didn't have that fear of, oh my goodness, my mother's going to be like, you're going to become an alcoholic. So I had the free reins to kind of um, take off. And, and even before then, all of my, my time and effort was spent on my my academics and my sports and working out. And I was a very healthy person. I had straight A's. I graduated fourth in my class. So, you know, I had a lot of things going for me. But when I went to college, I went to college in Boston. Um, it was a big culture shock. You know, I didn't have my mom there to protect me from all of these evils in the world. And so I, I turned to booze. And very quickly, I discovered that I couldn't drink at night and wake up in the morning for my, my classes. So I introduced illicit substances into my diet mm -hmm. and <laughs> I had a, you know, it was an instant love affair. And I, <clears throat> you know, I am five and a half years sober now, but I only use for five years. Um, you know, but it was the, the progression of the disease was so quick for me that I was at my rock bottom at the end, you know, like I, I got kicked out of my dream college after it was a five year program. I got kicked out after four years. Um, I lost all my jobs. I was homeless. I was couch surfing on my drug dealer's couch. I was making extremely, extremely dangerous decisions. And it was all because I was under the influence of drugs and alcohol, but I didn't see it that way. I was, you know, I'm an addict, I'm selfish and I'm perfect. <laughs> So it was, you know, it was that my parents were going through a divorce or that my brother was a heroin addict when I was younger. You know, it was everyone else's fault. It wasn't right. mine. Um, and, you know, when I lived in Boston, I, I cut off contact with a, a lot of the good people I had contacts with before. And I got into contact with some really, you know, not so good people or, or you know, they were good people making bad decisions, I should say. Um, and I got I, I, you know, I got stuck in that lifestyle and it was more the lifestyle than it was, you know, I, I liked getting high and I liked getting drunk, but toward the end, I wasn't getting high or drunk anymore. I was just sustaining. So I wasn't sick or I wasn't, you know, having seizures from alcohol withdrawal. Um, so, you know, at one point I tried going into recovery a month before I actually 
got into recovery and I went to an outpatient program. And so I could go home at night and they gave me drug tests in the morning and for some reason, I just thought I could smoke a little pot and go and they weren't going to catch me, you know, and like that's that's the, the craziness of this disease. Like they, you think that you're above everyone, you know, you hear about someone dying in a car accident because they were drunk or someone overdosing and immediately you think, well, that could never be me, you know, and, and the, the realization is it could, you know, it's and so, you know, I did a lot of crazy things. And I don't like to really talk about the things I did in active addiction. Just know that I hurt a lot of people. I hurt myself. I did a lot of illegal things. And I, well, we, I could go, we, we could go, we could go into a little bit of it. I mean, all right. All right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, could, I guess I could go into a little bit of it. Yeah, I'm like, let's not gloss over too much here. Okay. Right. right. Well, I, I just finished a five part series on like five big things that I did in addiction um, that were crazy. And one of them was I, I would go on, you know, three and four day binges and I would shut off my cell phone or I would lose it. And no one would get a hold of me. I had, you know, the cops called on me for missing persons reports at least five times, you know, and I, I would I would make all these people just so crazy worried about me. And I didn't care. I didn't care about their worry. I didn't care that they were calling the cops and people were out looking for me. All I cared about was my next high. Um, and I hurt a lot of people in the process. And, you know, I had. I had one of my friends bang down a door in um, in the north end of Boston because he, he found out where the cab driver dropped me off after four days of like keep keeping going back to this cab company. Like, where did you bring her? Like, we, we can't find her. <laughs> um, and he, he finally got it and he shows up and drags me out of this place because I was I was on a five day binge, you know, and that's that's really dangerous. And that was really what when I look back at my active addiction, that was as much as I hurt everyone around me, I was, I was putting myself into dangerous situations and I was putting myself in a situation where my family was going to have to find me in a really vulnerable state. And that's what I didn't want. Um, and that's what really got me to open my eyes to be like, wow, I'm not just affecting myself. I'm affecting other people. You know, there was one time that I went to a company outing and, you know, I did drugs beforehand. I drank. It was a, like a booze cruise type thing. It was like oh. 11 o'clock in the morning. So I immediately, <laughs> you know, like an hour into it, it was like a Tuesday too. It wasn't like a, a weekend. It was just a random Tuesday, this booze cruise, but I didn't know how to handle myself, you know? Um, so like an hour into it, I'm, I'm blackout drunk and I come to in the back of a cab. And I'm like, oh my goodness, where am I? Like, how did I get in this cab? I was just on this you know, boat, drinking, dr dancing, whatever. And I realized I had no money on me. I didn't have my purse. I had nothing on me. And we're in, in South Boston and this cab driver stops at a stoplight and I got out of the cab and I ran. And he's, he's chasing me in his cab and he's yelling at me and I'm yelling to him. I, you know, I had a boyfriend at the time. I always called them hostages because that's what we do. We take people hostage. Absolutely. So I'm yelling my boyfriend's number. I'm like, call him. He'll pay for my cab. And I just jumped into a bunch of bushes and the cab driver took off. Oh, you know? my God. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm, oh. I'm starting to remember. I know I've done shit like that. Like, it's been so right. long that I've totally forgotten. But I know oh. I've, I've, know I've done the, car, the, the the taxi I, cab shuffle. 
yeah, I didn't remember until I had, I came to my amends and I'm like, Oh my goodness. So I went to the, I didn't know what cab company it was. So I figured if I paid some type of cab company, my fare that I would, that would, you know, make me okay. So that's what I did. You know, <laughs> I felt so bad, you know, and, and really like we can laugh at this, but <clears throat> in, in all honesty, the things that we do in active addiction is, is extremely dangerous to ourselves, to the ones around us. Um, and, you know, I would drunk drive. I would drive under the influence. And because I'm a girl and I'm pretty good at crying on command, I usually got out of the situations that probably would have put me in jail. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing. Um, maybe it would have gotten me to my bottom faster. But, you know, I didn't have any consequences for a long time. I've never been arrested. Um, the biggest consequence I think that suffered other than my mental health and my health in general is I got kicked out of school. Um, and that was my dream college. So that was one. I lost my license. Just it wasn't because I was um, I was drinking and driving. It was because I had too many parking tickets in Boston. Instead of paying my parking tickets, I would spend my money on drugs and alcohol. So right. I lost my license. Um, I lost my car. I lost my apartment. I was homeless. So, you know, I never, I, I skipped the whole jail thing. Um, but I had a lot of consequences in my life. That's for sure. You were homeless. I was, I got kicked out of my apartment and I couldn't get the money to go in like, even in like room shares, I, I just could never have enough money to get together. I always had a full-time job, but uh, you know, I was living in a city. It was drugs are expensive and really drugs are our first priority. And that was mine. And once I got kicked out of school, I didn't have my student loan to pay for my bills anymore. Um, so I was on my own. So I, yeah, I was homeless. I was couch surfing for a while. I stayed at my friend's house, but you know, I would just, I would make a fool of myself or I would put them in bad situations or I would steal for them from them and they would kick me out. Um, and eventually I moved in with my drug dealer. Uh, I didn't pay him anything. But I moved in with him, <laughs> you know, I, and I thought that was safer, you know, and technically, I guess I wasn't I, I could have moved back to my my parents' house, but it was, uh, you know, two hours out of the city. I had a job in the city or I had jobs in the city. I should say I didn't have a steady job um, and all my drugs were in the city. So I chose to be homeless instead of going back home where I couldn't get drugs. I couldn't get money. I didn't have a car. Of course. <laughs> and and that's that's what addicts do, I guess. No, that's exactly what they do. So yeah. is this uh your story in a nutshell? Yeah, basically. Okay. I did a lot of dumb stuff for a long time, for five years, and then I hit my rock bottom. So tell us about that rock bottom, you know, and go into as much detail as possible. Yeah, sure. So um thirty days before I hit my actual bottom I went on one of those two week binges and I came out of it and I had done some really, you know, I had cheated on my boyfriend at the time. I had called my mom in a blackout and started like really saying some awful things to her. Um, I crashed my car. And so it really just all these, all these things were coming to a head and I couldn't, I couldn't excuse them away anymore. So my excuse was, well, I'm an alcoholic, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go to rehab you know, this is going to fix everything. Like you should feel bad for me. I'm an alcoholic. I never said I was a drug addict. I just said I was an alcoholic. So I went to that 30 day or it wasn't even really 30 days. I think it was like 21 days, this outpatient program. But like I said, I was coming home and I was smoking pot at night 
I think like two weeks into it, I started drinking again. And then by the third week before I was supposed to graduate, which I never did, I started using drugs and just didn't show up anymore. Um, and, but the seed was planted because a week later I was, um, I was very depressed and I wanted to kill myself. I, I made a plan on, on May 12th that I was going to jump in front of the Acela train. I lived right across the street from the Acela train at the time. And, um, I knew the schedule, it goes 120 miles an hour and I knew that it would be like an instant thing. So I went into work that day. I picked up what I wanted to pick up. You know, I wasn't going to jump in front of a train sober. Um, I came home and I proceeded to do all my drugs and all the alcohol that I had. And I blacked out. Um, I came to a couple minutes later and I was fighting with my boyfriend over a knife that I was, I, I think I was trying to stab myself. I don't think I was trying to stab him, but like I said, I was in a blackout. I don't know. Um, I blacked out again and I came to at the train station. Um, and I didn't jump, you know, I thought about it and I didn't jump. So I told my boyfriend that I needed to go to the hospital. I told him if, if you don't take me to the hospital, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to kill myself. You know, that this is the end of it. I'm, I'm just, I'm done. Right. And, uh, he, he said that he wouldn't take me to the hospital because I would be mad at him the next morning. <laughs> so, and it's so true. Right. Right. Exactly. So he was like, you got to call your mom. And so I, I broke down, I called my mom and, and she brought me to Norwood hospital. I was living in Norwood at the time. And that started, you know, I went in and I told them I'm, I'm going to kill myself. And that's how I, I got help, you know, but I didn't, I didn't accept that I was an addict still, even I was sitting in that, that crisis unit and my drug test came back and I, I will never forget the look on my mother's face when they read off every single drug other than methamphetamines and my blood alcohol level was 0.34. My mom's face was just uh, you know, I want to cry thinking about it. I could not believe it. And I still, I would not admit I was a drug addict. Um, so they ended up admitting me into this psych ward. And when you get, when you go to the hospital, you know, saying that you're going to kill yourself, they admit you for 72 hours for a psychiatric hold, you know, whatever. So I figured 72 hours later, I'd be out of there and that would be, I could tell people I had a mental breakdown and that would be my excuse for my behaviors. Right. Um, but they wouldn't let me out after 72 hours. They told me that my addiction was causing me to be a danger to myself and others. And unless I would commit myself to a dual diagnosis program that would treat my drug and alcohol addiction and my, my depression, that they weren't going to let me out of the hospital and that I would have to go in front of a judge and try to fight for my, my freedom. And, um, I was so mad at them. So I came out and I started talking to my roommate who just so happened to be in, in, in recovery. And um, I'm, I'm complaining to her. I'm like, they're not going to let me out of this place. They're calling me a drug addict. And I'm, who do they think they are? <laughs> and the, this, this, like, big, this gentleman, he, looks like, he looked like goddamn Santa Claus. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So he's, he speaks up. And he's like, do you mind coming, coming and sitting next to me? And his demeanor was just so calm. And he said something to me that will forever stick in my mind. And he said, are you the person that you want to be right now? In this moment, are you the person that you want to be? And oh. I was like, I got to go. So I, I got up and I cried 
And the next day I woke up and I sat next to him and he started reading me stories from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I decided that day after he read a couple stories and I identified with the people in the stories, I decided to sign my rights over to the psychiatric hospital to place me into a dual diagnosis program. And it was the best thing I ever did. You know, I went from that psych hospital to a dual diagnosis program that was inpatient. And then I went to an outpatient program. And from the outpatient program, I went to meetings. And, um, you know, it was it was an amazing journey up until I heard the word God in the hall. <laughs> you know, Bring I, it. I wanted I wanted to run away. I was like, hell no, I'm not going to come. And, and you know what it was? And I just wrote an article on this. I was like, I'm not going to listen to these Bible thumpers. Uh-huh. You know, that was my perspective. That was my perspective at the time. And that was, you know, and I can admit right now that that was the wrong perspective to have. I was ignorant when I walked into the halls of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that was the first program I went to. And I wanted to run out of there. But I kept going because I had nowhere else to go. No one else understood me. You know, I could I knew I couldn't go back to drinking and drugs because I was going to jump in front of a train. So I I just kept going to meetings. And finally, I got a sponsor because that's what they told me to do. And I asked my sponsor, I'm like, why do I need a higher power? And she's like, because you're not it. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck kind of riddle is that? What are you talking about? Um, She's like, you know what you should do right now? She's like, you need to use the group of drunks that are saving your ass as your higher power. Those group of drunks over there have more power than you do. And I still didn't understand it. I'm like, fine, I'll pray to the group of drunks, you know? And I thought I was, I was, I really was trying to be passive aggressive. I'm like, you know what? I'll show you that praying to the group of drunks doesn't work. But joke was on me. It worked. You know what I mean? (laughs) I finally... I finally got what she was saying. I finally got what a higher power actually meant. It, it had nothing to do with religion. It had nothing to do with God in the Bible. It had to do with a power that was greater than me that I could rely on to help me walk through this path of recovery, you know? And so I, when I finally, that was my aha moment in recovery. It was like, oh my goodness, I am not the most important person on this earth. And there is a lot of things that are great, greater than myself that can guide me in this life. And so, right, you know, that was probably six to eight months into my recovery. But that changed my recovery for the, for the better. You know, I started, I really started diving into my step work better because I, I had a better connection with a higher power. Um, and so since I've, I've done the steps four times, I did them twice in AA and twice in NA. Um, you know, I meditate. I try to do it at least once a day, if not twice. Um, and, you know, but that first eight months, it was like I was white knuckling it because I, I, I believed in myself. I believed in my <laughs> willpower to keep me fucking clean. And, it, it, you know, and I was struggling. I was struggling so bad because I didn't want to give that power up. And I finally did, you know, and I, thankfully, I I probably wouldn't be clean today if I, if I did not come to that realization that there's something greater than myself. And I, I, you know, I'm so grateful today for that. Wow. That is a, see, that's what, that's what we were looking for here. (laughs) Yeah, I know my using, like I don't, and, and honestly, I, my using, I don't remember a lot of it. And like, so now I can like look back and kind of see some things happening, but you know, I don't have a lot of, of like great 
using stories because I was like literally just the bottom of a barrel drunk and, and, and junkie from the, from the get go. You know, I really didn't acquire anything to lose. Right. Other than my, myself. Yeah. You were on a collision course. I was, yeah, I, it was from the minute I picked it up, I was on a path of self-destruction and it just continued and it tornadoed with, you know, bringing everyone into it. It was just awful. No, there's that incomprehensible demoralization that mm-hmm. you, you find yourself in right at the end and, you know, getting clean and sober is impossible. You know, you're at a mm-hmm. point, you're at a point where you literally can't stop, but you're no longer, you haven't had fun in a long time. You know, exactly. it's just, you, you, you know, you slip in and out of uh, a blackout and, you know, into, into a, a hangover, which mm-hmm. you try and medicate with. And it's just this constant Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde chemistry exactly. experiment where you're just constantly trying to find that perfect mixture between, you know, reality and absolute oblivion. And when you finally get to a point where you can no longer do it anymore, then, then it's the logical next step is I got to kill myself. Exactly. Uh, I just, I just needed to end. Yeah. It's, you're in so much emotional and physical and spiritual pain that the only way out of it is ending it because the work to get out of that seems to be too much to handle. I ruined my career. I ruined my, my college education. I ruined every, I was in a hundred thousand dollars of debt because I didn't finish college, you know? Yeah. My, my only escape was, was to kill myself because I didn't want to face all of the things that I brought down with me. Right. So then, you know, you're putting your, you know, your, now the, your boyfriend at the time, uh, the one that was going through this with you, are you still with him or was I am? No, I'm not. So like I said, that was a hostage situation. He was also, I can't say that he, you know, I can't say that he was an addict in my mind. He was, but you know, he, he's not an addict until he says he is. Right. Um, but yeah, that didn't work out. I tried to make it work out, but he had his own his own things going on, you know. A lot of like I said the the month before I had cheated on him. So a lot of that, you know, the trust just it wasn't going to build back up and we tried and it, you know it fizzled out. It wasn't I was under the influence when I chose that boyfriend, so I I wouldn't be someone I would have chose while I was clean. <laughs> Well, yeah, and and it's another reason why I asked because many times once you get clean, basically every single person in your life has to change other than obviously your your parents, your sisters, mm-hmm. your blood relatives, those are the ones that, you know, they they stick around, but everybody else is almost like it's got to go because the person that you were before that's the person that's going that attracted all those people, and the person exactly. you are today is going to attract different people. So then, I'm assuming it's your husband, right? The the. Yep. So I am. I am married now. I've been married for three years. Okay. All right. Um, is your husband in recovery? He is. He is in recovery. We actually met in AA. Okay. So you met your husband in recovery, and you guys got married uh, after you were about two years clean. Uh, yep. I was about two years clean. All right. And then you have how many kids? I have two kids. Wow. So I'm busy. <laughs> you not go back to the same <laughs> statement. <laughs> you, you move at, you know, uh, yeah, warp you know, speed. 
I really do. Like I got all my using done in five years. I was done in five years. And you know, like I just want to touch upon, you were saying that like we have to get rid of all these people. So, you know, I was in the psych ward for almost, it was like almost 20 days. I think I was there for like 19 days. And then I was in that inpatient program for another two weeks and then that outpatient program. So I really wasn't, I didn't have my cell phone for a long time. When I finally turned it back on, I had one voicemail. It was from my drug dealer. I owed him money. <laughs> Not anyone else. I, I And that's the honest to God truth. <laughs> no one wondered where I was for, for like almost 45 days. Oh, man. That it's, is... You know, <laughs> you know, everyone that's listening to this goes, yep, I get it. Exactly. I totally get it. You know, no... Yeah. You know, it's it sounds really... Uh, I'm sure people that aren't you know, haven't gone through active addiction might listen to this and be like, my God, this girl's a hot mess. (laughs) But you know what? Like anyone that has gone through it can relate and laugh at it because what am I going to do? Like beat myself up over it? No, you know, that's who, that's the reality of what it was. No, but, but also the reality of it is, is that as addicts, we're very intense people, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so we live an intense life, whether it's in addiction or it's in sobriety, it's mm-hmm. intense, right? And so, you know, once once we get clean, especially once you start to really grasp onto the steps. Yeah. The steps start, you start grasping onto the steps and they just start to perform miracles in your life. You know, as you start to develop coping skills, as you start to embrace a different way of life, uh, values, principles, you know, you, you, do, you start to love yourself, you develop self-esteem, self-worth, all these things start to happen. Mm-hmm. And so the universe just starts to present opportunities in front of you. You know, it's just like, it just, it does, it happens fast. But all these things, if you, if you allow yourself to walk away from your past, then mm-hmm. all the new stuff... All the new stuff is what's waiting for you in recovery. Exactly. I would say that if if more people could let go, right? There's that step two, step three. Yep. You know, where you just have to let go of the past. So many of us walk in and it's like, I want to get my marriage back. I want to get my Mm -hmm. girlfriend back. I want to get my job back. I want to get all this stuff back instead of... I'm going to have to let go of a lot of stuff and then let God work in my life and, exactly. and present me with things because what he presents me with is so much more amazing than anything I can come up with. Even though in the beginning, we're so hesitant to the whole idea of God. Who, yep. Why are we talking about God in here? You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to stop doing cocaine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, I always had those like foxhole prayers, though, when I was using like, please, God, like, let me just go to sleep. I've been up for five days. Just please. And I'll never use again. And then lo and behold, five hours later, I'm using, you know. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, I really had to like shed my old skin. I, I don't really have much from my old past in my present. If you do you know, you're holding on to these things, you know, you work a, a, a thorough four-step, you mm-hmm. know, in order to shed yourself of all the, of all that baggage. You're holding on yeah. to so much. And, you know, the fourth step is what helps you do that, that inventory, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you've got to, you've got to do this very fearless and moral inventory. There's a lot of terminology in there that people aren't going to like initially. That's why yeah. you, know, you, you work it with a sponsor so they can explain it to you. But, you know, once you shed all that, 
you know, you get rid of all the old baggage, then yeah, you know, you can start a whole new life fresh, no matter all the craziness we were doing, no matter if we wanted to kill ourselves at some point, because so many of us have, have. we've, you know, at some point just like, it, this is too much. This yep. is too much. So let's just, let's just end this thing. But for, for those of us that, that get past that and find our way ultimately to God, (laughs) (laughs) we get a life beyond our wildest dreams. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, like I'm, I'm super busy. And like when I was, when I first came into the program, I didn't stay busy. I, I sat in my own shit and I wallowed and I thought about the past and everything that I did wrong. And you know, like all the things I was missing out on. Cause I got clean at 23. I was only legal to drink for two years. So it was a big thing for me to be like, Oh my goodness, I'm never going to drink again. And I'm 23 years old. So I had to really, you know, before I could even open up to the idea of doing steps or anything, I had to get, get a grasp on the fact that I needed to change everything in my life. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now you know, five years in, married, kids, you've got these projects. You've got the yeah. Sober Mommy and you've got um, some things in the future. What what are the projects you're working on right now and, and what do you see big picture, you know, for your future here in recovery? So my, my big future goal is to help decrease the number of um, accidental overdoses, you know, the heroin epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's at, at right now the number is only increasing. So what I'm trying to do is work with um, families and the communities to really destigmatize addiction and get them to know what addiction is all about. So my my most recent project that I'm doing is I am doing a 30 minute TV show once a month on my public access channel, and it's called Ending the Stigma. It's kind of like a talk show. I'll have different um, professionals from the addiction field, so be it psychologists or or maybe um, like police officers, I have a guy from the ambulance corpse that wants to be on there. And like, I'll, I'll live stream it on Facebook and people can ask questions for these professionals. And I'll be talking back and forth with these professionals about what they see, you know, what they think can end this epidemic. And it's really just trying to get the information out there. Because anyone that you a lot of a lot of families don't want to admit that their child's a drug addict because of the stigma. Um, and then God forbid, if their child dies, they can't openly mourn the reason why their child had passed away because of the stigma, you know, and you see these pictures online of these mothers overdose with their kids in the back seat. These people are never going to lead a normal life again because of the stigma of addiction. So my, my goal is to end that stigma and start a conversation of how to fix it. Um, I'm also working, I, I do marketing So I'm working with another addict and promoting a book and and trying to do the funding for a documentary on on the heroin epidemic. So I have a lot in the works. I also write, you know, I do I I contribute monthly, sometimes bi-monthly to addictionblog.org. And then I also I have other blogs that come and ask me to write articles for them. So I do that when I'm asked to. Yeah, you got big goals, you know. Yeah, little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not just trying to like help a couple addicts. Like I, you know, like my goal is to is to really put a dent in this issue. I'm curious about okay, the public access. So, yeah. so how does that work? How how do you get how do you even start with that? 
So my, I actually approached the public access channel because what I wanted to do was a one hour open forum, um, in like the school's gymnasium or some type of, you know, nice hall and people from the surrounding communities, because I actually live next to a couple cities that are, are hit pretty bad with the epidemic. Um, so I wanted to do this open forum where I would have, you know, a psychologist, a police officer, the ambulance, the, you know, the people that are dealing with the addicts, the active addicts on an everyday basis and trying to normalize, not really normalize, but humanize these addicts mm-hmm. um, and have families come in. And, you know, I would have Narcan. I would have information on rehabs. I would information on Al-Anon and Naranon and, you know, all of that. So anyway, I approached these people. It was like, hey, I have an idea for this. And, you know, it just so happened to be a progressively thinking producer for the show or for the for the TV channel. And he was like, I have a better idea. Why don't we do a 30 minute talk show or a 30 minute show? You can do whatever you want. Um, for six months and really, really get some hype about this and really, you know, may get some listeners. And so we're not going to have a forum with maybe 20 parents there. We can have a forum with hundreds of people and really reach out to these people. Um, so that's how that started. You know, I just expected to do a one hour, something that would be broadcasted for people to really learn about drugs and alcohol and what it can do. And it just kind of snowballed into, Hey, why don't you do a 30 minute show? And so if our listeners wanted to check out that 30-minute show, how would they find it? So they can go to uh, my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Kayla Greenhalge Addiction. Um, I have not started the Facebook page for the show yet because I don't have the, the right name down yet. But they can follow that for any updates. And then they can also ask me questions and they can ask for if they want like a, a a specialist on drug replacement therapy, or if they want to, you know, someone that has 25 plus years in recovery, you know, like I'm willing to listen to, to my readers and my followers on what they want to do. You know, this isn't for me to sit on a TV show and talk to people. This is to, to answer everyone else's questions that they might not be able to ask, or maybe they're too ashamed to ask. Okay. So you're going to post this on your Facebook page. Correct. Okay, so whenever whenever it's about to be broadcast or it's a li- it's going to be a live. Yeah, so I'll Facebook live it, and mm-hmm. then I'll also I'll also once it's edited and it's already been broadcasted, I'll put a link to the final thirty minute piece. Well, you can also put it on the Facebook private group too, so that I will makes it easier for them <laughs> to 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 find it because sometimes yeah, you know they're already there. <laughs> So, so, so feel free to drop a, you know, so many of uh, the listeners and the guests, they have uh, a lot of recovery material that they're, Mm -hmm. that they participate in either it's blogging or it's, you know, other podcasts or whatever the case may be. And and they post our videos and they post those on, on the Facebook page. Uh, So yeah, I, I, it'd be great to, for you to post that on there. And you mentioned one more thing. There was another, another media that you were using similar uh, oh yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm working with, um, another recovering addict and I, I do marketing on the side. So I'm actually marketing his book, mm-hmm. which is going to be coming out in, in February. It's his memoirs. It's called, I am a heroin addict. And so I'm working with him to get his story out there to help other addicts. And we're also working on trying to do a documentary. 
Ah, that's what it was. A, a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's in the works. That's that's another that's big picture. That's in the item. works. Yeah, that's a big picture item. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Excellent. All right. So there's a lot going on over here, keeping you very busy. And again, like we were talking in the beginning of the, you know, before, before we started recording, you know, idle time is the, the devil's workshop. So it really is. You know, if you're not busy doing something productive, then you're going to be busy doing something, you know, that, that, that uh, could, could be, be destructive. That could be destructive, right, to you and, yep. and to those around you. And it's another reason why I do the podcast is to continue to like you bring us together. You know, there's right. so many of us uh, around the globe that are suffering from this. And I can't tell you how many people still struggle with reaching out to some sort of a recovery program, whether it's AA mm-hmm. or NA or smart recovery or anything else. Just making that, taking that first step towards a, admitting that they have a problem mm-hmm. to, to another human being, um, and then being in a room that is, is about recovery. You know, they have that, that tough time just getting in there yeah. and being around people that are in recovery. And why are these people so happy? And I was sure that everyone in recovery was doing something on the side. They could not be happy not drinking ever again. I was, I was certain of it. Yes. No, you know what's <laughs> what? funny is there's so many of us that are like, when am I going to have enough clean time to get uh, included in the private club? Because there's got to be that once you get enough time and you're right? in with the right people, then you get to be part of the the, the special, we're using something, <laughs> <laughs> but you have to learn how to use it first. It's so fucked up. Oh, I know, right? Our minds are, and that's what it is, you know, and that's why, you know, I write and you know, I write a lot about recovery and the things I write about my my active addiction. I try to have like a, a funny spin on it because that's we we are so hard on ourselves about what we did or how we're doing in recovery or where our thoughts are going. You know, especially when you start doing the steps, you're you're thinking you're very aware of what you're thinking. So you begin to at least for me, I would begin to criticize what I was thinking. I'm not even saying it out loud and I'm criticizing myself, you know, and that's an active addict trait. And I ha- I had to relearn not to do that. And it's so wonderful, even this conversation we're having right now, that, you know, there's going to be a few thousand people that hear this and they're going to be oh. going, yes, I, I, <laughs> I totally get it, right? Like I have these thoughts that are self-sabotaging, that are constantly trying to justify and rationalize all these crazy things in my life, right? And and making sense of things and and, and manipulating myself, talking to Mm -hmm. myself in my own voice. Only another addict (laughs) would understand. He's got to get that, right? I know. We call it the itty-bitty shitty committee, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, there's something that my, my sponsor always says, I apologize for everything. And a lot of addicts do. And you know what she said? She said, you would apologize if someone stepped on your foot. And every time I apologize to her for something, she tells me, get off my damn foot, because that's what I should be saying. Instead of apologizing for that person stepping on my foot, I should be like, get the fuck off my foot, buddy. Absolutely. Uh, but we learn how to do that. We do. It does. It takes time. And, and I for anyone that's listening, that's struggling and, you know, is wondering when they're going to get to a place that they feel happy and they feel good about themselves. Just hold on until, you know, 
Don't leave until the miracle happens. Is that, yeah, that's what we say, right? That's absolutely what we say. Don't leave five minutes before the miracle happens. I love it. All right, Kayla. Well, let's start closing up here. All right. Sounds good. And what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery. Mm -hmm. And I want you to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Sounds good. All right, let's do this. So what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? I didn't think I was an addict. Um, I thought I knew that alcohol was a problem, even though I was using more drugs than I was alcohol. But I, I really thought that I had a mental health issue, not an addiction issue. And really, I did have a mental health issue, but I didn't see it as one in the same. I saw them as separate. And so I would admit that I had a mental health issue, but I wouldn't admit that I had an addiction issue. And that kept me sick for a long time. Excellent. Excellent. That totally makes sense. So number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? You know, I think it was probably my second or third meeting. And I went with a friend of my father. So like I said, my father was an active alcoholic and he still is. And so his way of supporting me in my recovery was sending me with his other alcoholic friends that went to AA. (laughs) So I, I went to this meeting and you know who I saw? I saw that guy that I was in the psych ward with that was preaching to me from the AA big book. And I was like, this is where I am supposed to be. You know what I mean? And I I went and I hugged him and he was so glad that I was there. I didn't even know where he was from. I just happened to show up at the same meeting as him. And I realized that I was in the right place and that this is the place where I was going to find my healing. That is a beautiful story. I love those. Those are amazing aha moments, you know, because... It it really was. Later on, it's funny because I've had those. And at the time, I wouldn't consider it a God shot. But I know right. years later, looking back, I'm going, wow, God was just so right there all over me, you know, when I first I, I came in. I back to that man all the time because I really think that he was, he was my higher power. He was, yeah. he was sent by my higher power to intervene in my life. And if he, if he hadn't have, I wish I, you know, I wish I could remember the meeting I went to, but I was in that, you know, early recovery. You don't remember much, but you know, I think about him all the time. So if you're listening, if you know who I am, please reach out to me. <laughs> That is awesome. I love it. This is so great. You can find out all her information will be on the show notes. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Well, I jumped right into the big book, like I said, but if it had to be a book that wasn't, um, you know what I did? I read, I read adult children of alcoholics and I identified with that book because I am an adult child of an alcoholic. And that actually, there's a section in there that's adult children of alcoholics that are also either alcoholics or drug addicts. And um, really anyone that if you come from an addictive home or an alcoholic home, and you're wondering where these traits came from, read that book. It's amazing. And it, it's like it was written about your life. And that was it. It, that really brought me closer to the program and closer to my recovery, you know, because I understood a lot of what was going on. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. And number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? Fake it till you make it. Um, <laughs> I, I, 
you know, so I got my sponsor not too long after I got into the program and I was actually like going to active meetings. And then, you know, you get you get three months and you can finally speak from the podium. And I thought that I was, you know, everyone would always speak about this spiritual, you know, guidance that they had on their walk of recovery. And I was like, I don't have that. I don't know what you're talking about. I can't speak like that. So my sponsor said, okay, use these group of drunks and fake it till you make it, you know, talk to them. I act as if they could save your life. And that's what I did. And I faked it until I finally had that other aha moment of, oh my goodness, there is a power greater than myself. And then I could not fake it anymore. I actually did have my own higher power. That wasn't something that my sponsor told me to use, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautiful, beautiful suggestion. Um, And then finally, number five, if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? 90 meetings in 90 days. So people in the halls will get to, you know, try to get to at least one meeting a week that's the same meeting. So if you don't show up to those meetings, those people are going to be like, where is this person? You know, you, you need to get your face out there. You need to, <clears throat> you know, if you get to a meeting and you don't like it, go find another meeting. You're not always going to like every single meeting that you go to, but I promise if you listen and you actually listen with an open mind, you'll hear something. 90 meetings in 90 days. And if you're not completely satisfied, we will gladly refund your misery. We will. (laughs) So, Kayla, what is the best way for our listeners to reach out to you and find you? Um, So they can either go to SoberMommyBlog.com or they can reach me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Kayla Greenhalge Addiction. I answer pretty quickly because most of my work is on social media. Beautiful. Wonderful. All right. This has been an amazing interview. Thank you so much for joining us, Kayla. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. You have such a great story. I loved, well, more importantly, uh, your your bottom story is so, so much that I can relate to and I know that our listeners will, will be able to relate to. So I'm 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 glad I was able to get that out of you. <laughs> I know, I know. And like I said, I don't remember a lot of it. So it's hard for me sometimes, especially like on it it's not even like I'm on the spot, but like it's hard for me to piece it together sometimes when I'm like cuz most of my writing and most of my work is in the reco- in the solution, you know. So I like blocked out what what caused it in the first place other than I did a lot of drugs and alcohol and made a lot of bad choices. <laughs> no, no, no. What we have here is beautiful. Your recovery journey is magnificent. And, Thank you know, you. What, you, what you're doing right now is so important. So that's, that's what matters right now, what you're doing with what happened. Right, exactly. And that's how it is now is what's important. Right. You know, I'm still here. And if I can do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. 
We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.